AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hi, Stan. I heard you have an interesting story about a WordPress botnet. Yes, I was reading an article on ZDNet and uh, they pointed me at this other company which I didn't know about before, Defiant and WordFence, and basically they analyzed this WordPress botnet. The thing that was interesting about it is it's basically these uh, servers that have WordPress installed and they have become, you know, usually when we think of a botnet, we think of like computers or laptops, but these are servers that have a problem of some sort and they're actually executing the task of trying to infect other servers that also have WordPress installed. Uh, and the way they do that is by brute forcing the username and password to the administrative interface so they can install their own plugin and continue perpetrating whatever scheme that they have. For some reason, after all this time, we're still seeing WordPress vulnerabilities out in the wild. And for some odd reason, they're still password related. Uh, the one thing that's interesting about this research is that the security researchers were able to figure out some things that the adversary didn't do quite right uh, in setting up their C2 infrastructure. And by doing that, they actually uncovered the entirety of how the whole thing was set up. Uh, so one of the things that they realized is that this threat actor actually had four different C2 servers from which they were sending commands to all of the infected uh, bots. Um, and the way they were kind of like hiding themselves is by going through this bestproxies.ru service, which I guess is a service that uh, you know makes it so that when you're using the internet, it looks like you're coming from like 20,000 different endpoints or something like that. And uh, then basically they sent the uh, commands to the WordPress site, which would then basically try to attack other WordPress sites. Uh, so that was interesting. But the, the thing that I found the most, most interesting is how the adversaries failed to set up their C2 uh, interface access. So obviously, you've seen this many times, when you go in and you try to uh, set up like some kind of a service, you have like a username and password prompt, and you expect that you can't get any information from the website until you type in that username and password correctly. Not so for these guys. So what they were doing is in HTTP, very technical, but in HTTP, they were saying like this 302 redirect right. that would take you to the login page, but Inside of that redirect, they were actually including the content of the web page. So you could browse the entire website. Like your browser, I guess when they tested, your browser would redirect you and you wouldn't see it. But if you did it the low level by actually using like a curl command or wget, you actually could see the website. So what did the security researchers do? <laughs> they actually went and they used like some tool, burp I think, to uh, you know, fake out the 302 and change it to a 200, and then they could see the website. And when they saw the website, this <laughs> is basically what the adversary would see to manage the botnet. They could see all the different logs, they could see all the different, you know, whatever information there is as to relationship, uh, how the botnet operates. And one of the logs they were able to see is apparently the, adver the hackers forgot to pay their bills, is how they wrote it in their article. <laughs> But what's interesting to me is, you know, hackers or defenders or authors of WordPress, everybody's human and everybody can make mistakes. And so the adversaries are using, you know, like uh, 
brute forcing attack to guess passwords that are might, might be like too easy. Right. Uh, so there's a human failure there. The adversaries develop this whole thing and they're really creative probably in their structure and their setup, but it kind of all crumbled because they didn't implement it you know, 100% correctly. Right. Again, I would say human error. They didn't pay their bill, human error. So there's a lot of these things uh, that I guess happened. One of the most interesting things to me about the WordPress story is how related it was to the research uh, John and I were doing uh, related to the tro uh, Scarcity Trojan. The reason why it reminded me of it is because it was a botnet that was for Windows devices, so like laptops, desktops, regular ones. They were also using brute forcing. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, it was using a very similar type of mechanism over XMLRPC. Uh, and this person or this adversary, which is a different adversary from before, also had a little bit of a failure, so to speak, because when they were installing uh, their version of the malware on these WordPress blogs, they weren't necessarily securing uh, the directory. So you could actually list the contents of them. <laughs> so w one of the things that we're able to learn is how their botnet uh, is set up. It reminded me yet again that there's multiple bad guys out there they try to use the same techniques or the same flaws, uh, but to use them in different ways. So you found that they were related? Or the that only you, or, way or it's related is using the word? same technique. It's using the same brute forcing yeah, technique. But you said they were also using WordPress. They were Right, okay. so the infected device, so the things that your computer would go after if you were infected would go after They're this WordPress. WordPress blocks. And everything is hosted here, and that's also where you upload your stolen files. So one of the things we were able to observe is the scarcity thing is using simple password guessing, like admin-admin. And the other Trojan uh, is using something a little bit more complicated, where they take your username and put like a one at the end or something like that. And surprisingly, it works. You know, you wouldn't think it would work, but it works for them. Now, do they say, not in this particular attack, but in the one from the Zenit article, what their purpose was? Like, I know just to build that a button, but at some point they were going to use it for something. Exactly. So <laughs> the thing that they really concentrated on was the build out of the botnet, yeah. and that was the thing that they described the most. So we might see it come back uh, soon. For sure. <laughs> it's clear that there are thousands. Are they all? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's clear that there's thousands of these types of things right. that are vulnerable, and anybody can take advantage of them. Right. It's surprising to me that like reading this article, and just like, really a few days ago we were doing this research, and I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, multiple people are looking into this, and multiple people are trying to hack uh, this right. resource, WordPress. Seemed to be something, again, we talk about this a lot, and my story was about this also, that you know, just if you use more sophisticated passwords or you change them, that, that you wouldn't become infected here. But it was very interesting. Hey, Jonathan. I hear you have a very interesting article about the force. <laughs> yes, so the article it was uh, actually from ESET Research, um, and they named it the dark side of the force. I was going to say it's a play on wars on force, uh, but the main reason they did that is because it's uh, about uh, OpenSSH backdoors uh, on, in Linux systems. Um, and in this case, they actually uh, were able to identify about 21 families total from, total from all their samples, and they name each family by one of the names from Star Wars uh, uh, planets. So that is why I guess the theme of Star Wars is 
was using the article. Um, so the interesting thing about this was um, that uh, out of the 21 families that they found, um, about half of them, they couldn't find anything about anywhere. So they're brand new open SSH backdoor families. The researchers were able to find out that they were missing these uh, malware families because the another malware had signatures for it. So they realized, wait, we've never seen these before. It must mean that they exist. It must mean that they know that they're being used in the wild. So let's try to find them. So that kind of led them to this path of, wait, the, the attackers have insight on other OpenSSH uh, backdoor families that we do not. <laughs> so that's why at the end, they ended up with about 12 that they were not, had not found anywhere, they were not discovered anywhere. Um, they have now published um, uh, what is the rules, antivirus rules, so that they can, you can put them into your system and then check for them. Um, if you're interested, and I think a lot of the, probably a lot of the security providers are already implementing them, I assume, if they're in a, um, in it's a It's a big zero day. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is that most of them do what an OpenSSH backdoor does, right? They, they, they get installed and then they're trying to grab credentials from people that are using the OpenSSH clients. They're trying to, you know, exfiltrate those credentials. Um, some of them are more actually a lot smarter than others. Some use encryption. Some some try to hide their credentials into system paths so that it looks like it's a system file. So like they, they explore all of that in the paper. I would definitely recommend someone interested in learning about each different family to go look at it. I was really amazed at how much research had gone in by the, the, the authors of that article in that white paper. You know, they made some very key discoveries. They uncovered numerous new malware families nobody knew about before. Anybody who is interested in like malware analysis and tearing apart multiple different malware families and right. figuring out how to compare them, this is a great paper because yeah. it gives you some ideas. They figured out like, you might wonder if you're a malware researcher, how did they come up with highly sophisticated or not sophisticated right. at all? Uh, so to me, that's interesting. Yes. It's one of the things that, and they have like a whole chart and like that that figured out. You know, this feature means it's sophisticated, and this feature it's not. There's also C2. Some of these are Correct. true backdoors. Yes. So a true backdoor, right? You pa you type right. in a special password. Yep. So be, they actually list the passwords. Correct. So it'd be interesting to see, like, what are the passwords that work, or right. how maybe. Some of them were selected. You'll see some passwords are like super long, right. and some passwords are pretty short. Right. Those shorter ones, they might indicate like how the adversary is thinking, and right. maybe gives you some ideas about who they are. There's some stuff with like RSA keys, right. which is like on the more insane side. Some right. of the stuff was like beaconing, so you know, a so, lot of great research. Yeah, some of the. To, to is, is there some idea that these were all done by the same group? No, no. Or is this, you know, so they have no idea? No, they so just they kind of. Uh, they, go ahead. Yeah, they got like large sample, and then they start figuring out what code looks similar, and that's how they kind of started pinpointing the families, right? Because a lot of it was actually different, but they would only maybe change the password, like the same was saying, for like their remote, you know, to be able to enter remotely, or they would change like maybe a couple lines of code, like maybe someone sent an update, I don't know. But so like they tried to make sure that when they said a family, it was a family, like most of the code was unique, 
And in, the, and in that case, I mean, there's no way to know if it was the same group or not, right? Because there, there's no similarities, really. Um, all I can say is try to prevent it ahead of time. Protect, make sure the route is not open on the internet for your SSH. Don't use passwords in SSH outside either or ever if you can. And, you know, just try to use public, private key. Is it fair to say, uh, may the force be with you? Um, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Stan. That is definitely appropriate. <laughs> you, uh, you should always be thinking uh, as, as if an adversary is successfully defeating your different protections and setting up uh, you know, layers of defense so that if one becomes uh, compromised, you still have the others to rely on. Defense in depth, layered security. So Karen, you brought us a story where it might appear that there was a breach, or maybe not. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting story, maybe a little bit of a PR problem that we found on Krebs on security, where the Citrix systems and, you know, our pretty big uh, organization, they sent out a notification to all their users of ShareFile that they had to set up, uh, redo their passwords. Uh, so, of course, everyone said, so, was there a breach? You know, how come I have to reset my passwords? And they said, no. But there is, in general, more password guessing that's going on out here. So we just want to be doubly sure and have everybody set, reset their password. Unfortunately, in the last three years or so, every time we receive an email to change your password, it means that the company was breached. So I think that's why a lot of people reacted in that way, feeling that, oh no, did, did they get breached as well? Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting in here was is that NIST actually says that it's not a good idea for you to just proactively change your password, which you would think that's kind of counterintuitive. You know, why wouldn't you want to change your password? But in general, they say that when people change their passwords on a regular basis, they tend to use passwords that are easier. Yeah. So that, um, you know, if you're always going to use the same one or two different ones and they end up being shorter, that, you know what, it's not a good idea. So keep them uh, longer, more complex, and don't change them that often. So I thought that was kind of an, also an interesting point here. And um, the other important point here was, is that anybody who was already using multi-factor authentication Identification wasn't notified to do this. So, uh, also suggesting out to everyone that you know maybe that's something that you should consider, which of course you yeah. should, um, and that uh, that this whole uh, all of us need to be more obviously aware of this problem. Uh, and but but I really thought that it was interesting how much grief that Citrix got over this effort that the people had to, oh my God, I have to go out and change my <laughs> password. It seems like such a small thing to do, um, but yet we seem to continually see this, that people don't like changing their password. When I read this earlier, I, I, I felt that the, the reason they would have to do that for everybody, I guess, is because if they're doing it correctly, they're not storing people's passwords, right? So there's no way to tell you, uh, not only that, they're salted, so they're unique to that user. So there's no way for me to tell you that your one, two, three, four, five, six password is no good. <laughs> so it's probably just easier to be like, hey, everybody, we don't know what password you got, but it's probably bad. Just 
pick a new one. <laughs> uh, I guess that's my assumption. I don't, maybe they were changing what their requirement for the password. Maybe it was six characters and now it's ten. Or I five. don't think they actually talked about the fact that they actually okay. made it the rules more complex. It was just that they felt it was time for everybody to no. you know kind of start rethinking this okay. again. Uh, that. For, and the real question was, why now? Yeah. You know, why, what was it? And I think that's what made people suspicious. What is it that happened on your system that made you all of a sudden <laughs> take this message that says everybody has to change their password right. when you're telling everyone, but, you won't, but we weren't breached? Yeah, the way I look at it is if somebody's telling you that maybe you should change your password, yeah. definitely you should change your password. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, uh, if you ever hear from me and I tell you, there's a chance you need to change your password, you should change your password. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe it's time to go to multi-factor authentication. Right? I agree with that. I know for me personally, and I recommend for everyone, whenever two-factor authentication is available, always turn it on. Yeah. It just makes sense, and it makes it a little bit easier you know, to rest assured that if somebody does have your password, because I think it's fair to say that, you know, there's been so many breaches oh, yeah. from all kinds of companies that your information is out there somewhere. <laughs> and just to be safe, you should always be, maybe every year, you know, maybe every month is too much for you, but maybe once a year, change your banking password. It doesn't need to be the same. Or make sure you have the two-factor authentication. Or use a password manager. Or use a password manager. <laughs> yep. And then it becomes yeah. really easy because yeah. you can just change your password all the time. Yeah. Really, you should be following uh, you know, the following strategies. Right? You don't want to be using the same password everywhere. If the website you're using doesn't support multi-factor authentication, you're probably going to want to use a password manager. And I think those things will give you enough layered defense um, so that you can uh, you know, feel good about your security posture. Uh, so I have the internet weather for you guys today, and it's fair to say that it's cloudy with a chance of scanning. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is the top 10 most pro ports um, uh, for today, and uh, it's all the same ports that we see all of the time. Um, I, another way to look at this information is to say, hey, what are the categories or subcategories of these services? So you'll see like 23 TCP Telnet, 22 TCP SSH, uh, 3389 TCP. These are like administrative interfaces uh, for being on the terminal. Or the 3389 actually gives you like GUI access. It's like RDP. Uh, then there is things like you know um, SQL servers like 1433 web ports. A lot of common vulnerabilities against those. So uh, it's a it's a mix, uh, but the thing uh, it's is the same story uh, vulnerable ports everybody's scanning them the top 10 are usually about the same every week we don't seem to have any changes in internet weather from week to week every once in a while something might pop up i think that just kind of tells us that either the the threat actors are actually profiting from this otherwise why keep trying right this is the most sources probing this is actually the what we use to study botnets, uh, and especially emerging botnets. Um, so the port I want to talk about is 5555 TCP. Uh, we've talked about this port many times. We actually talked about this port for years for two different reasons. <laughs> uh, the first reason was uh, Mirai. 
So you guys probably will remember a big DDoS attack and like never heard of it. <laughs> uh, a big DDoS attack and uh, that that caused some actual DNS server outages uh, on right. the eastern northeast uh, part of the U.S. Yep. Uh, and uh, that was attributed to the Mirai botnet. Later, as the source code was released, you know people tried to integrate more and more different vulnerabilities into it. And there was this TR069 vulnerability. So that was the original 5525. More recently, we've been looking at uh, the Android debug bridge port. So mm -hmm. some Android devices, if you enable uh, debug mode on them, they open up this as, I'm going to say, a backdoor uh, port. But it's really the port that allows you to do administration and communicate with the device in an administrative way. So what I decided to do, uh, something different than I usually do, is to say, hey, uh, what do we see in our honeypots for this port, 5525? Which of these exploits do we see? And the one I just happened upon uh, is, uh, is the one that's related to the TR069 vulnerability. Uh, so this is data from our honeypot. And you could see, uh, it's actually for today, uh, the exact exploit as it appears. This is happening right now. <laughs> uh, and you could see there's an article at IS, uh, ISC at SANS uh, that explains this and some of it in more detail. And what's interesting to me is that was, um, I think, like two years ago almost, or maybe a year for sure. So definitely months ago. And almost the same thing is still happening on the internet uh, with just a slight variation, which is um, this activity right here. Uh, so I decided to explore it further uh, and to try to understand it a little bit more. And I wanted to give you a chance to see how I think, uh, which is very weird. I think about malware all the time. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I, I always pay attention to when I'm investigating something like this is like the URI, the post request, the type of HTTP request, the user agent string. And usually the reason I do it is for exploit activity. Sometimes these are the things that give up what the adversary is. For example, if you see like a lot of devices, scanning and they have these things set a specific way, it might indicate that it's just one person behind the scenes, right. even though it's multiple devices doing this. In fact, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing multiple different IP addresses, probably part of a botnet, maybe a Satori or something like that, or Mirai, or a variant, uh, trying to use this technique. And they're scanning constantly. But these things remain the same. The user agent string remains the same. The actual exploit uh, remains the same. So the way this exploit works is basically you try to retrieve this file from the internet. That's what WGET does. And then you try to execute it. And if it succeeds, if your device is vulnerable, this will happen. If you search this URL right now on VirusTotal, you're going to get two hits. Uh, so two vendors think this is a malicious URL. Uh, and it looks like it actually popped up on the radar for VirusTotal as early as November 12th. If you do download that file and you look inside of it, one of the things you'll notice is it'll redirect you to possibly download this MIPS executable. So I, I went ahead and I tried to uh, figure out some, st some stuff about it, like what kind of file is it, what are the hashes, and see if it's on VirusTotal. On VirusTotal right now, if you look at that file, there's actually no matches. It's not detected as uh, a virus at all. <laughs> so it's so fresh, whatever this is, that it's not being detected by any okay. vendor as malware. Uh, that's, I guess that's what happens when you look at honeypot data. Uh, so do we have a process where we like submit it to them? Yes, the best way to actually submit samples is through VirusTotal. 
yeah. if you send the stuff to VirusTotal, all of the different uh, vendors subscribe there. Right. And that's actually like when we're looking at the thread research like we just did with ESET, yeah. that's actually a good way to get your sample out to as many researchers as possible. So, uh, what did I do with this sample? I actually try to just look at the strings output. It's a, just a very simple technique, very basic technique for figuring out how the malware works. And you could see this is what it looks like. One thing I did note and the stuff I highlighted, these are hard-coded items. So it means that like the virus itself, these values don't change. This is like in the, in the Trojan or in the virus itself, uh, which is interesting to me. Uh, I don't know yet exactly 100% what it means. Like I wouldn't have expected this to be the same because I, I would have thought the adversary, you know, the, the content section would change or the exploit mm -hmm. would change. This would have to be changed with that, but this is hard-coded. There is also a bug in the virus code. Uh, this IP address, when, when they contact you, is actually backwards. I don't know why they implemented it backwards. Again, to me, it shows the human side of adversaries and yeah. not these like crazy super hackers where they are. Uh, but they sometimes make, make mistakes. So I went through the honeypot and I said, hey, what kind of URLs are we seeing for the past few days? And I saw that we're seeing you know, this UD with a five and with a nine, uh, but that's it. And then I said, well, for all of those, what are the user agents that we keep seeing? And what I found interesting is you know, most of them were this thing that was hard-coded in the malware samples, but there were also these other user agent strings, which to me indicates either a slightly different variant or maybe a different adversary. Um, and so that's how we take the internet weather report and we try to figure out what malware it is and how it works and how it functions and get some uh, information about malware and how to best track it. I really liked the insight that he gave the threat track viewers about how we use the honeypots and even when um, maybe there isn't something dramatically new, just digging in and looking at what he found um, yielded some brand new virus that hadn't been seen before. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.